Well, let's take our Bibles, if you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter number 2. Acts, chapter number 2. As we uh, continue in our study of this, really of the first century church, we already receive a pretty clear picture as to how the, what the church looks like. And in our text here in Acts chapter number 2, we'll pick it up again in verse number 37, read down to the end of the chapter and look at a different aspect of what was true of the church in that first century. Notice Acts chapter 2 verse 37. Uh, notice the Word of God says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and uh, parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I would like to draw your attention, if you would, to verse number 42 in our text. After these nearly 3,000 people received the word, they were baptized, the Bible says they were added to the believers there, and from our study of chapter 1, we know that there was at least 120, that's a, quite a bit of increase there in the church, about 3,000 of them joined, but I want you to notice verse 42, we looked at uh, what is the church in the first century look like? And this is, if you would, the curtain being pulled away so that we can see what was going on in verse 42. We noted the first one, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We noted very importantly that the first thing that the first century church was involved in was continuing steadfastly in doctrine. And by the way, doctrine comes first. And we find that to be true in the first century church. And then, the second we find is this, they continued steadfastly, not only in the apostles' doctrine, but fellowship. I want to preach on this subject, continuing steadfastly in fellowship. Now, we are approaching our text by asking ourselves this important question, and it is this. Are we like the believers that are described in Acts chapter number 2? Are we like the believers described in Acts chapter number 2? Now this question brings us, I believe, to an important examination of our lives, but also an important examination of this church. Uh, you see, what is it that the church needs today? 
Uh, what is it that this church should concern itself with? Uh, we do not need to come up with some new ideas or some new theories about what to do. The only change that is needed in any church is a change, or if you would, a return to the Word of God. Amen. I think the tendency is true in our lives personally, is it not? To kind of draw away from the Word of God and there has to be a constant adjustment. But that is true for the church as well. That there's a natural tendency for churches to draw away from uh, what we should be doing. And I want us to examine ourselves and see how we compare to this first century church. You know, countless articles and blogs are being written about how to adapt to the 21st century. How, what, what are churches supposed to do in the 21st century? Videos and interviews are being recorded where men and women seek to convince their audiences of the things that must be changed in local churches. The Aspen Group, which uh, had an article on their website entitled this, Conquering the Challenges of the 21st Century by Ed Baller. And he said this, Millennials desire conversation about spiritual matters. They believe that Jesus, the Jesus we know and trust may have answers for them, but they are overwhelmed, distracted, exhausted, and mistrusting. Finding faith must be on their terms. Faced with this powerful opportunity to reach millennials, church leaders must learn to prayerfully wrap their ministry and leadership strategies around the 21st century challenges. With so many competing and compelling options to, on how they uh, are to spend their lives, millennials won't wait long for us to get it right. Working with hundreds of church leaders to create effective ministry space and meeting with thought leaders from around the country to discuss trends in the culture and in the church held, helped clarify an approach to tackle the challenges of reaching those who are far from God who call this process, we call this process, here it is, alignment. And they say this, alignment focuses on four key 21st century ministry strategies. And here they are. Number one, we have to focus on or align with the evolving culture. Number two, we have to have relevant ministries. Number three, we have to have empowering leadership. And number four, we have to have intentional facilities. Now, we, he goes on to conclude, we are energized by what we're learning from this research and we are excited to share it. Now, let me be very clear. I do not want to ascribe any motive upon those who write such articles. I believe they say those things while having good intentions. I really believe that. I believe many of them to be sincere people. They truly feel that they are helping the church in the 21st century, and I do not criticize them for their desire to be helped. However, it is troubling to me that they are searching for answers in the wrong places. Why is it that the Christian church has become enamored with the culture? Why would believers want to place so much emphasis on being relevant to the culture around them? You know, if there is any alignment that is needed, it is an alignment to the Word of God. What the church needs in the 21st century is not to become relevant to culture, but 
it needs to have a revival back to the Scriptures. The church it will always make a fool of herself for trying to impress the culture. We are not commanded to be fools for the culture. Or to the culture, we are commanded to be fools for Christ. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul is talking about this idea of preaching the gospel. And he says to them, as there was obviously some contentions going on in the church at Corinth, the church at Corinth was known to be, some carn for, to be a carnal church. And remember, in the first chapter, Paul says, now some of you are all divided because some of you say, well, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And Paul says, is Christ divided? What had happened to the church at Corinth is they had become man-centered. And if you would, in a sense, to them, who was most relevant, relevant to them? Some of them would say, well, Paul's more relevant to me. Cephas is more relevant to me, or uh, Apollos is more. I like the way he preaches. I like him better, and he's more relevant to me. And he says, is Christ divided? And he brings back their focus, and he uh, talks to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he says, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. God hath chosen the, He says, the foolishness of preaching to save the lost. The foolishness of preaching, you get that? Uh, so we, we have to understand that our mind must not be so consumed with trying to be relevant to the culture and to be enamored with, oh look, we have to adjust to the culture. No, we have to look to the Word of God. What has God chosen? You see, the obvious focus of the church of Corinth was a focus on man, not on God. They were in conflict, again, about Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Uh, they were divided and split into different groups. Uh, when we come, however, here to Acts chapter number 2, the local church is brought in focus. Things are kind of brought in focus for all of us to examine ourselves and to examine this church. What did this church do? Uh, what did they give their time to? A number of priorities are named in our text, and we observed a number of them, generally speaking, and looked at uh, the fact that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, but what else did they do? What is the church for? Well, for verse 42 of Acts 2 identifies a number of those priorities. Number one, we see they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. But then we, he adds this, and fellowship. He goes on to say, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. But I would, like, I would like to look at the second item that is listed in verse 42, and that is entitled this, fellowship. This is a, a clear picture of the New Testament church. We identify the second priority that they gave to it. I don't think anything is a mistake in the Scriptures. There is an order to those things, and so they gave themselves continually to the doctrine of the apostles, and also to this Fellowship. Now, I want us to kind of clarify what this idea of fellowship is. And so I want us to look at a number of truths so that we can understand what is it that his fellowship was in Acts chapter 2 and that continued through the first century. And is that true of this church? 
Now, consider number one, and I think we have to start there. Number one, we consider the interpretation of fellowship. Well, what is this fellowship? Well, what is he talking about? You see, I think that there's, I think we all understand there's a misunderstanding or often a misrepresentation concerning this idea of fellowship. And I'll tell you, I've been guilty of that misrepresentation. Uh, many are claiming today, well, uh, look, we need more fellowships. Uh, we need less doctrine. You see, doctrine divide and fellowship unifies us. But remember what comes first. Doctrine first and then fellowship. You see, the spirit of our day, uh, and it is not anything new, is a spirit that says, let's come together, let's be unified, let's not forsake our fellowship with one another. And the idea of fellowship has become very superficial. Uh, I would admit that I myself have said a number of occasions in the middle of our meetings, when we were used to have the handshakings, right, before COVID hit, uh, we, uh, what we were saying, what were we talking about, we would say at the third hymn, before the last stanza of the hymn, everybody take time, go around, shake hands, greet each other, and fellowship. And I would say that. Or even we may think of fellowship and say, well, uh, I would encourage you to stay after the, the service and greet each other, or say hello, or stay for a time of fellowship. But that is not fellowship in the way that it must be understood as stated in Acts chapter number 2. What is fellowship? Well, the word fellowship means this. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. It means this. It is a deep association. It is a true communion. It is a close relationship of which the highest example would be marriage. Uh, the word is sometimes used to describe a partnership in business. So fellowship is not, I think we all understand here, fellowship is not anything superficial. It is something that is actually deep and meaningful. So fellowship is not when we come to the meeting and we shake hands, say, how are you doing? Doing good? How about you? Doing well? Good. We'll see you later. That's not fellowship. That's wonderful. We should greet each other. We should show ourselves friendly to one another. But that's not fellowship. You see, we immediately know, I think, based on those words and its definition, we know what fellowship is not. It is not meeting occasionally once or a few times a week in some building, shaking hands and beginning at the end of the meeting and then going home. Fellowship is something deep, vital, central to our lives. Interestingly, the Word of God refers to the church as a body. We are all members one of another, but we are part of the same body. That's interesting because it, it has this idea of there's this fellowship, there's this bond, there's this communion, there's this closeness uh, as it pertains to the body of Christ on earth. I want you to go with me, if you would, to Mark chapter number 10. Uh, Jesus Christ is teaching His disciples something interesting here. He uh, kind of um, tries to answer the question that Peter uh, kind of perks up and he says, well, look, we, we've forsaken all. We have followed you. What, what, what's in it for us? And in Mark chapter number 10, notice if you go with me, if we begin reading in verse number 27. Uh, the Bible says, Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Verse 28, Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all, and have followed thee. 
And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the gospel's. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now well, what is Jesus talking about here? Uh, so uh, those who had left right to follow Jesus Christ, they left behind family members, houses, lands, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, and those who had left their human father and their mother because they were following Christ, he says here, uh, will receive father and mother a hundredfold in this present life. What is he talking about? You see, there is a new family. They become part of a new family. This is what is meant by fellowship, this, this communion. Uh, this closeness that is, remember, uh, the Jews of the time uh, were quite severe with anybody who decided to be a follower of Christ. Often they would, uh, uh, their own family members would hold a funeral for them if they uh, confessed Christ as their Savior. It was quite uh, real for them to make that decision to follow Christ and to trust Christ. But then Jesus says, look, you have forsaken all, but guess what? You may have forsaken father and mother and sister and brother uh, and son and daughter, but here's the, this wonderful truth. You will reap a hundredfold in this life. What is he talking about? The people of God. The fellowship, the communion that there is with the people of God in this world. Yes, it is a tragic thing for many to lose their family because they hate those who follow Christ. But yet there's another family that accepts them just the same. So when we think about that fellowship, that's what we have to have in mind. That's the proper interpretation of fellowship. You see, these believers, remember, uh, that had been saved now, they'd received the word, they were baptized, they were added to the church. Remember who these people were. According to Acts 2, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, you, by wicked hands, you've crucified and you've slain him. These were the same people who had shouted when Jesus Christ was, uh, when uh, Pilate presented Barabbas and Jesus says, who do you want me to release? And they said, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. These same people who had shouted crucify Jesus were now part of this group that identified with Christ. They were part of that group that said crucify him and now they're part of another group of people. Many of them had to leave their father and mother, brother and sister. But now, as they joined themselves to this new family, they were in fellowship. There was something special going on in that first century church. And so that's the interpretation of fellowship. But then we move on to really the, the second part. I think it's, it's important to know the inception of fellowship. How is fellowship made possible? In other words, how could it be possible that... If you would, someone that was on the outside, right, of the 120 in Acts chapter, two, chapter 1, the, that was part of the group that said, crucify him, crucify him. How could someone like that, that was part of that group, become part of this group over here? How could someone who had joined those thousands of people who had cried, crucify him, become of the part of the group that, of the 120 and identify with Christ in baptism? How was that made possible, which brings us to the inception of fellowship. I believe there's three things to note about 
how, what made this fellowship possible. If we understand biblical truth, we understand three things that makes this fellowship possible. First of all, we have a converted nature. These people who had shouted crucify him had been converted. These were they who received the word. They were baptized. They joined themselves to, uh, uh, to the church. That's what Acts chapter 2 tells us. They were converted. You know, Romans 8.11 tells us what happens at salvation. Romans 8.11 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal body by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. 2 Peter 1.4 says, Wherefore are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye, may, ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Now remember, we talked in Sunday school this morning how we were, uh, based upon our lust, we were the children of wrath. By nature. But now we've received the divine nature. The Bible says when we are believers, we, uh, the Bible says we're new creatures. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How is this follow fellowship possible? Because of the converted nature. A conversion takes place. We were, right before salvation, the enemies of God, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, but now we have been made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been quickened by the Spirit of God. We become part of the family of God by conversion, by the regeneration of the Spirit of God. That's what makes that fellowship possible. That's where the fellowship comes from. It's interesting to me, there is... Uh, uh, and I've had the opportunity, I'm thankful for that, when uh, growing up on the mission field, my parents were missionaries to the country of France, lived there most of my life, but I had the opportunity to visit Spain, Italy, Greece, Bulgaria, England, Switzerland, wonderful countries. And in all those places, there's a whole lot of people. But every once in a while, you will meet a certain group of people. And it's as if you've known them for a long time, even though you've never met them. What group of people am I talking about? I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about churches. We went to one of the poorest countries in, uh, in, uh, that used to be part of Russia, Bulgaria. One of the poorest countries did not even speak their language and yet we knew we were part of the family as soon as we walked in that church. As a matter of fact, as uh, two uh, young men from France and look, not in need, we had this lady come in the church and she knew that we were coming from France to visit to be a blessing to the missionary and at the time I was just a young boy but this lady came in and she gave me and my brother a bouquet of flowers. And I thought to myself, that, that's interesting, I, you know, I, I don't understand, this must be something cultural. And then the pastor of the church, the missionary, the Frenchman came who had started that church, he came to me and he said, he says, now, I want you to know this is a really precious gesture she's done. This is everything this woman has. She has nothing. We bring food to her house every day. The only thing she tends is to her garden. And even though we couldn't speak the language, there was a bond right there. Why? Because we're part of the same family. You see, uh, that is the inception of fellowship. How has this fellowship become possible? Because we have a converted nature. But also there's a second thing, that is because we have a common doctrine. Now remember, this is important, what comes first before the fellowship was, 
they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You see, doctrine was central. And because there was an agreement, a consensus, you see these people that have said, crucify him, when they heard the apostle Peter preach, they thought, we missed the truth about Jesus Christ, but now we understand the truth about Jesus Christ. And now they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Every day, these people were going at the apostles' feet and says, we want to hear more. Would you teach us the Word of God? And they received that teaching. You see, that fellowship happened how? By a common doctrine. So there was a converted nature, a common doctrine, but there's another thing that we find, I believe, that is, uh, or, uh, allows this fellowship to take place, and that is we are a chosen generation. You know, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1 or 2, verse 11, the Bible says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. That's who we are in this earth. We are strangers and pilgrims. It says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, there's something that brings us together, and that is the fact that we are all transitory in this world. The unregenerate world that is not saved lives for the now but not so the people of God. You see, the reason why we fellowship is we're all in the same boat. We are all strangers and pilgrims in this world. While the world makes this world, this temporary place, their abode, that's what they live for. The Christian lives for something greater. He understands it is transitory, and that's what brings this fellowship, this communion, this camaraderie between believers, and so that is the inception of fellowship. So we see the interpretation of fellowship, the inception of fellowship, which brings us to the next one, that is the impact of fellowship. What happened? Now, we've already noted in the first two chapters, now the word fellowship is only found this one time in the book of Acts. You will not find the word fellowship again in the book of Acts, neither before nor after. However, it is demonstrated throughout. For example, in the first chapter, remember in chapter 1, verse 14, before even the day of Pentecost came, they continued with one accord. You see, they, they were together. They had this fellowship. They had this one mind in chapter 2, verse 46. They continuing daily with one accord in the temple. You could read later in Acts chapter 5, verse 11, they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And although many things were happening Understand, the church, all the way to said, look, they continued steadfastly in fellowship. You know what that means? They continued steadfastly. That fellowship never stopped. It kept going. And so the words we read, such as they were in one accord, it speaks to that fellowship that was a continual fellowship, a continual communion, uh, this uh, great fellowship that they had with one another, this preciousness that they had to be part of the family of God. And so we think about that. What, what happened? I, I imagine as we read through the book of Acts, we could pick up the expression when they looked at this group of people and they said they took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. That's what that fellowship produced. I remember later, uh, they complained that Jerusalem has been filled with their doctrine. That's what that fellowship produced. They go on to say later, I think it's chapter 15, these are they that have turned the world upside down. Do you see what that fellowship produced? 
Uh, the, uh, continually as we look through the word of God, the Bible repeatedly says, and the people that behold what was going on, they were amazed. It would be amazing, wouldn't you? If we put ourselves in the congregation and we look over here and uh, Peter is preaching, we look over here and we see these are these people over here, they're standing and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him, do away with him, release Barabbas who is an insurrectionist and a murderer. And the people who are standing, they say, well, we know this guy. He shouted, crucify him. And now the same guy over here, he says, you need to repent in the name of Jesus Christ. The same man that said, crucify him. That was amazing to the people. The wonderful thing is that many of these were not alone. The first time Peter was, to, was told to, to stop preaching, remember when he stood before the, uh, the, the high priests and the religious authorities of the day? When they were told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ, you know what happened immediately after they left the courtroom? You know where they went? They went to the church. They gave a report. They rehearsed all that they were told. And then you know what they did together? They all prayed. That is fellowship. There was that communion with them. This fellowship, this camaraderie that was there. This special bond between them and so we see clearly in the book of Acts by them turning the world upside down the impact of fellowship. But I want to give us another one and that is the illustration of fellowship. How is this fellowship illustrated? Well, I want us to go to the first chapter or to the second chapter of Acts if you left your position there. Notice in Acts chapter number 2 after the Bible tells us they were in fellowship it illustrates for us what happened, if you would, in the practical sense in the church. Now notice here, Acts chapter 2, verse 44. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, these verses have been often misunderstood uh, and misused to advocate for some type of socialism or communism. They say, see, the first century church was involved in that type of thing. The text does not say that they sold all their possessions and goods to be placed in some communal account to be distributed equally to all. That is not what happened. Rather, it was what was taking place was the following. These believers did not hesitate to sell some of their possessions when other members were suffering. That, that illustrates the fellowship and the closeness that was going on within the church. Why? Because as we're aware, if you were a Jew at that time, and the Jews that got saved, 3,000 were all Jews at that time, when they got saved, understand what happened to their family. If a son said, hey, Dad, I'm a follower of Christ, he would say, you're gone. You lose your job, and I will not give you your inheritance. You're dead to me. The young man would find himself out in the streets with nothing. Well, immediately at the inception of the church, when the church began, you find that when some had needs, the believers did not hesitate to say, hey, well, look, I have this piece of property over here. I have all I need. I'll sell that. I'll bring it to the apostles, and then they can give to those that have need. That's what we're talking about. This is not uh, some uh, type of socialism. This is uh, uh, them caring for brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, in essence... This is the commitment they made. We are all prepared to live for one another as the need arises. That's fellowship. 
You see, this is certainly what we often do for family members who are our own flesh and blood, do we not? When a father, mother, son, brother, sister is suffering, we are prepared to help them with, if, if it is within our ability to do so. We, we do that. Allow me to give you yet another example, if you would, in uh, more of a ministry example, if you go with me to Acts chapter number 13. In Acts chapter 13, uh, this would be the first great missionary journey by the Apostle Paul. And notice in Acts chapter 13, notice verse number 1, the Bible says, Now there were in the church that it was in Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they, the men just listed, ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed from Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Now you can read, it's amazing there, this journey, from the beginning of, of Acts chapter 13, all the way to the end of Acts chapter 14, and you can read all that they did. At one occasion, Paul went to a city, he got driven out, got stoned, left for dead, and then the disciples surrounded him, and then he popped up and kept going. A wonderful thing, but what happened when they returned? Notice Acts 14, at the end of the chapter, Acts 14, notice verse 26. After they had done this whole journey, and then sailed to Antioch, remember that's where they left, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled, and notice what happened, verse 27. And when they were come back to Antioch and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles and they, were, and they abode there a long time with the disciples. That's fellowship. You see that? Paul and Barnabas went out. They did all these great exploits and started churches, ordained elders in the church. They come back to Antioch. And what did they do? They get everybody from the church together. Why? Because the whole church was involved in the first place in chapter 13. The whole church was involved in fasting and laying their hands on them and sending them away. But what is interesting is the Bible tells in chapter 13, they sent them away and the very next verse it says, and the Holy Ghost sent them. So the question is, who sent them? Was it the church or the Holy Ghost? Both. Fellowship. Communion with the Lord brings communion with believers. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. One of the evidences that we are saved is a love and a passion to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's an evidence that we're saved. But this brings us to the last one. I believe this is really a key because we ask ourselves, how does such a fellowship continue unhindered? Well, number five, the incorruptibility of fellowship. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I mentioned that passage of scripture at the beginning of the message and we'll end here. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. I want you to go with me down to verse number 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9. The Bible says, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see that? We, he says, you have been called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So the fellowship that, we're, that we have, the common fellowship that we have is through Christ, through Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on to say, notice in the text, verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Paulus, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. You see, he says, God is faithful, in verse 9, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son. Right before he goes on and say, look, there's something has happened to your fellowship. Some of you are standing and says, well, I like Apollos. I like Cephas. I like Paul. Well, I like Christ. And the spiritual ones are, I like Christ. And he says, is Christ divided? What is it that God brought you in? He brought you in fellowship, but here is through Christ. It's not about Paul. It's not about Cephas. It's not about Apollos. It's about Christ. Remember that the basis of your fellowship is Christ Himself. Philippians 2.1, Paul says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit. You see, what is it that brings us together? It's Christ. It's the Holy Spirit of God. That, when that is kept in focus, fellowship will be what it ought to be. Undivided. I want to draw attention to one more passage of Scripture. The epistle of 1 John is very important because it's that whole epistle is about fellowship. In 1 John, notice verse 1, uh, chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, That which ye have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. So he said, we want to have fellowship together, right? But truly our fellowship is with God and with His Son Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, verse 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. You see that? If we walk in the light as He, God, is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. How can our fellowship be unbroken, incorruptible? How is that possible? In Christ. You know, because we, we may say, oh yeah, I, I have fellowship with, with, with Christ. But if we walk in darkness, the truth is, we don't have fellowship with, God, with, with Christ. And because we don't have fellowship with Christ, we don't have fellowship one with another. So really the adjustments that need to be made are the adjustments in our relationship to Christ. You know, there was the conflict in Corinth, you remember? The Bible says, only by pride cometh contention. Can anyone be in fellowship with Christ and be full of himself? 
I say to you that is impossible. It is impossible for us to be full of ourselves and yet to say we have fellowship with Christ. Because the only thing that fellowship with Christ will bring in our lives is humility. And when that we have that in Christ, then there will be fellowship with the believers. Why? Because our fellowship with God is what it ought to be. You see, that's why the emphasis today is not on unity itself. There, there is no unity apart from Christ. There is no true fellowship if Christ is not the preeminence in the church. And so may the Lord help us to get an understanding as we look at this church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and, you know, I've always overlooked that word. I really have. Only found one in the book, once in the book of Acts. But they continued steadfastly in what? In fellowship. And repeated through the book of Acts tells us they were in one accord. They were in one accord. They were in one accord. And so may the Lord help us to get an understanding of that and to ask ourselves the question again. Do we look like the, 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 the church in Acts chapter number 2? Is that my involvement in the church? Commitment to the church? Is that what our church looks like? And so may the Lord help us. If there's going to be any alignment that is needed in this church, it is to be an alignment with the scriptures.